conversations. Good day, everybody. Welcome to this new episode of Parkinson's disease. Sorry, it's been a couple of weeks since we've put one up. We had some various technical issues. Which have all been fixed. Thank you to everyone who uh, let us know when the website was down. So today we'll be talking about Parkinson's disease. Let's just jump uh, straight into the case. So Mahesh is a 70-year-old guy brought into the ED after a fall by his concerned daughter. You've been asked to review him and see what to do next. So the, the two chief questions that you're going to be asking yourself in this kind of situation when someone's come in with a fall back. So I always think about the, the setting, so what caused the fall, and secondly, what happened because of the fall, so injuries, complications. So basically not too many complications. There's just a small laceration that needs suturing but no neurology to worry about. And in terms of a cause, you're pretty happy with yourself. You um, figured out that he's just put on a new ACE inhibitor and the fall had this like very kind of postural hypotension-like quality to it. He, it happened straight after he um, got out of bed, took a few steps and then fell. So you, that only took a few minutes. You're pretty happy with how efficient you've been and um, you watch uh, Mahesh uh, shuffle out the door. You're like, hang on, shuffle. That's probably not, not that normal, is it? That rings inside your head and you're like, Mahesh, can you come back here for a moment? So he gradually turns around. Mm. Exactly. So why? So what, what thought is, is going through your head? Why so is shuffling such a concern? Shuffle triggers to me um, shuffling gait. So it's a feature of Parkinson's disease and, and that kind of fits with someone who's falling. Yeah, exactly. So there's two reasons someone with Parkinson's disease might fall. Uh, there's postural instability, which is a part of the de- disease, which uh, kind of happens a little bit later on. So it's less likely to be the sole cause here, given it's undiagnosed in him. But they also get a lot of autonomic instability. And maybe that together together with the ACE inhibitor uh, has, has been what's caused Mahesh to fall. So autonomic instability, we'll go, we'll go into in a little bit, but it's when the features that your body self-regulates things like blood pressure aren't working properly. So it can cause a postural drop. So when you're a young person, when you stand up, your body's really good at regulating blood pressure to make sure it stays up. Um, But when you're older, and particularly with Parkinson's disease, you get much worse at regulating that. But before we go uh, into Mahesh a little bit more and and figure out whether he truly does have Parkinson's disease, let's uh, educate ourselves a little bit on the disease itself. So it's common. How common is it? So 0.3% of the population aged greater than 40. So maybe that doesn't sound that common, but in, in medical sense, that's extremely common. You'll see a lot of it in hospital. Mm. So risk factors, Beck, there's two main ones. So advanced age. Yep. And is it genetic family history? I'm not too sure of the genetics and whether we know the genes, but family history is definitely a pretty well-established risk factors. Mm. There's some pretty interesting protective factors. It seems if you if you live badly, basically, you're going to have a smaller chance of uh, having Parkinson's disease. So cigarette smoking is protective. The only other one that um, cigarette smoking is protective for that I know of is ulcerative colitis. So I guess that's a win for the smokers. And while I sip on this coffee, what else is protective? Coffee, yeah. And then uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So basically, if you just are aiming to completely stuff up your stomach, you'll have a, a smaller chance of getting Parkinson's disease. All, All right. right. Tell me about the pathophysiology. This is something that's always confused me. So we won't. it's obviously very complicated, and we won't go into the, the weeds too much, but I think it's important to know three words. So alpha, alpha synucleinopathy, 
which is a difficult word to say, obviously. But that's not three of them. <laughs> um, which aggregate into Lewy bodies. So that's the basic uh, protein that causes the disease. And it creates a problem in the basal ganglia with too little dopamine. So that's basically all you need to know in a nutshell. You need to know that it's an alpha-synucleinopathy and then that causes a disease in the basal ganglia where you don't have enough dopamine. So you said there were three keywords to know. Mm. The first one is alpha-synucleinopathy and mm. what are the other two? Basal ganglia and dopamine. Ah, so basal ganglia is one word. That's right, yeah. Got it. If you say it fast enough. All right, so alpha-synucleinopathy is important because the dementias and movement disorders can roughly be broken into tauopathies and alpha-synucleinopathy, so different pathophysiology. Alpha-synuclein is a normal protein. We're not exactly sure what it does, but it's found in synapses. Um, and the other main alpha-synucleinopathies are Lewy body dementia mm-hmm. and uh, multisystem atrophy. Just as an aside, we're really in the weeds here a little bit, but Lewy body dementia is the same disease as Parkinson's disease, basically. It's just the dementia is coming on earlier than it does in Parkinson's disease. It's more of a historical accident that we've um, named them two different things where they're really just on, on, on the same spectrum. Mm, right, and, and still in the weeds a little bit here, but that means if, you, if we take a, a step back, dementias in general and movement disorders in general are all broken into tauopathies and alpha-synucleinopathies? Alpha <laughs> uh, roughly, yeah. Right. So I'm sure, hopefully there's no neuroscientist listening because they're probably screaming, but that's my lay doctor's understanding and that's certainly how it was taught to me in physicians and then so the on the other side of the fence you've got the tauopathy so that's alzheimer's frontal temporal dementia supranuclear palsy and corticobasal degeneration mm. all right so alpha synucleinopathy is the key word okay all right moving on to the basal ganglia which is actually two words thanks for correcting me so this is where the disease occurs so the the key um, word that I was taught as a medical student is substantia nigra, which is part of the basal ganglia, but it's actually all the different um, basal ganglia, which are in the subcortical region of the brain. So you've got the cortical region where you've got your frontal lobe, you've got your kind of high order thinking, and then you've got your basal ganglia, um, which is subcortical below that. Mm. And this is the extrapyramidal system. Right. And so the, so the basal ganglia is looking after the extrapyramidal system. That's right, yeah. What does the extrapyramidal system do, I hear you ask? So it, it inhibits the motor system and then it releases that inhibition when motor activity is required. So it's the thing that's holding you back all the time until you decide, yes, I'm going to move my arm now. I'm yeah. going to smile. So it's basically like fine-tuning the motor system, basically. Without that, it's kind of very rough and we don't have much control, um, which is what you see in diseases of the basal ganglia like Parkinson's disease where you have too little dopamine, people are frozen, or, or like Huntington's where you have too much dopamine and people don't have that inhibition and they're moving too much. Mm. All right, so that's a key word. It's just some interesting stuff that's coming up um, in Parkinson's disease these days in terms of pathophysiology. So over the last few years, there was a big paper released a couple of years ago that we think it might actually be a prion disease like a Critchford... Kutzfeldt-Jakob disease or mad cow, that kind mm. of disease, misfolded proteins. And the current theory seems to be that maybe it's coming from the gut. So it travels from the gut up the vagus nerve and into the olfactory system, which is why the first symptom, as we'll talk about, is often loss of sense of smell. That's part of the prodrome. 
And uh, it's backed up by some studies which basically um, looked into people that had vagotomies where they cut the vagus nerve for some whatever reason um, and they have a, have a smaller incidence of Parkinson's disease, which is really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. So again, this is this is not proven. This hasn't made its way yeah. into the textbooks as yet. This is not going to be in your exams, but it's interesting though. And mm-hmm. the, currently the movement disorders guys are worried because if it's an infective disease, basically, they're now spending a lot of time in theatres with open Parkinson's brains, putting in um, deep brain stimulators together uh. with the neurosurgeons. So I, I look forward to the study in 40 years' time. Um, at rates of Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease and movement neurologists. Daughter. Yeah, exactly. All right. right. So, Darwin, tell me about the presentation. You said something about loss of smell. What are the other What are the things? What, what, what are the first warning signs that I should be looking out for that I've got Parkinson's? Yeah, so there's a low, long prodrome of can be 10 to 20 years. So there's three things to look out for. <clears throat> so constipation is often one, obviously extremely common and not very specific. Then you have anosmia. What does that mean? Lack of nose. Lack of nose. No, lack of sense of smell. (laughs) And uh, REM sleep disturbance. And this one's really interesting. This is when patients actually act out their dreams. And the reason for this is they don't have that sleep paralysis that most of us have. Mm. So if they think they're riding a bike down the street, they'll actually sort of be moving their their legs. I reckon most dogs have have, um, REM sleep disturbance. (laughs) So this is the most specific prodromal symptom. If you develop this, you're pretty likely to have Parkinson's disease. So it's a really good question to ask the partner, like how have they been sleeping over the last few years? Have you noticed them marking the footy while they're sleeping or getting in fights, that kind of thing? What are your dreams about? <laughs> so, the, so the prodrome again, three symptoms, constipation, REM sleep disturbance, and anosmia. So if that's the pro, prodrome, what's the, the actual active disease? What, what are the, what's the triad? So there's a classic clinical triad. So this is probably the most important thing to remember out of this podcast. So there's three things. Decrementing bradykinesia. Decrementing bradykinesia. This is the key feature. So that means that with the repetitive movement, movements become smaller in amplitude and slower in speed. So that's decrementing bradykinesia. So if you ask them to tap their fingers together with each subsequent tap, Um, It'll be um, smaller in amplitude and they'll be doing it slower. So that's the key one that you always need. To make the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, you need decrementing bradykinesia. Mm. So then there's two others. Tremor is the the one that, you know, most of society knows about. Um, So is that a resting tremor or...? Yeah, it's a resting tremor. So um, it's best seen when they're kind of resting their arms in their lap. Having said that, there can actually can sometimes be an action tremor, and that doesn't necessarily exclude Parkinson's disease if you see an action tremor. Mm-hmm. So the classic word to describe it is pill rolling, as if they're holding a pill between their, their fingers and rolling it. It's actually not. So this is one of those things in medicine where I think there's, there's so many of these words that they use to describe things because it's so evocative, but no one knows what pill rolling is anymore. Right. Pill, pill rolling is when, when people would make pills, like pharmacists. Oh, right. Um, it's not about rolling a pill in your hand. And when you think about it, it's not really what that what it looks like either. Okay. All right. Thanks. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, I think it's I think it's a really useless expression because nobody really knows what it means. But it's a it's a um, I guess a repetitive movement as tremors are. Mm. Um, and uh, in terms of parts of the body that are involved. So the big differentiator with the central tremor, which is the most common cause of tremor, 
is that Parkinson's disease doesn't involve the head. However, I was confused by this because I saw lots of Parkinson's disease um, that were moving their jaw and tongue. So jaw and tongue is fine. That's often seen in Parkinson's disease. But the actual whole head, that's never seen. Mm, okay. So that's tremor. And the last one is rigidity. So they, they just have increased tone, basically. Uh, and the kind of classic term is cogwheeling rigidity because you have tremor plus rigidity, which means it's this kind of jerking motion. So that try it again, Beck. Tell me what it is. Decrementing bradykinesia, tremor, and rigidity. Yep. So that's that's the most important thing uh, we'll talk about in this podcast. Mm. So, so with the rigidity, with the cogwheel rigidity, is that because of the tremor? It's not a particular kind of tone? No, it's tremor. So really? So it's the two, two superimposed on each other. It gives you the cogwheeling. And what if, what if someone has cogwheel rigidity, but they don't have a tremor? Uh, everyone kind of has some kind of tremor just may not come out um you know macroscopically basically right so if i if i assess a patient's tone and they've got cogwheeling mm. but they don't have a discernible tremor yeah is that still fairly specific for parkinson's yeah yeah okay. all right so the other key thing with parkinson's that's really important is uh whether it's symmetrical or asymmetrical which one is it Beck? Uh, well, often it's asymmetrical or always it's asymmetrical. It's always asymmetrical. It often starts on one side yeah. and then gets to the other. Exactly. Yeah. And that kind of fits with the infective nature of the pathophysiology or what we think is the possible pathophysiology. If you can imagine, like it spreads through the brain, right? So it starts on one side and then eventually goes to the other side. Mm. So if that's the triad, what are the other things? What falls outside the triad? Yeah, so there's a lot of Parkinson's disease is definitely not those three things. There's lots of other additional supportive features that you can look for. So postural instability. So that's uh, just an inability to maintain posture and main, maintain standing up, which is why people with Parkinson's disease fall so much. Uh, cognitive dysfunction and dementia. That's basically an inevitable inevitable part of the disease mm. and as we kind of mentioned before Lewy body dementia is the same pathophysiology and they also have lots of these Parkinsonian features but in them the dementias just happen much earlier so it's just kind of arbitrary line in the sand we've drawn where if you have um, dementia within a year of developing motor symptoms it's called Lewy body dementia but if it's after a year then it's Parkinson's disease dementia but it's, it's the same thing mm. So psychosis and hallucinations. So that's a really important one to be aware aware of um, that happens uh, later on in the disease because for two reasons, because it's the worst prognostic marker. Once they've developed this, they're, they're unfortunately heading for a nursing home very soon. And also a lot of the, d- the drugs you're giving for Parkinson's disease can make hallucinations worse. So then when people have that, it's a real balancing act between managing their motor symptoms and managing their hallucinations. Mm, and these hallucinations have quite a quite a typical quality. Often they hallucinate seeing very small people. Yeah, Lilliputian is the word. So that's from the, the Lilliputs from Galiva's Travels. Galiva. Yeah. Galiva's Travels? Galiva. <laughs> Gullible Galiva is what I call it. I believe they were little people. All right, so that's hallucinations. What about autonomic dysfunction? We mentioned that earlier with this case. Yeah, we won't spend too much time on it, but basically uh, when you you can't control your blood pressure and heart rate and other parts of the autonomic um, system as as well as you used to be able to, and the biggest manifestation of that is postural hypertension, big drops in blood pressure and standing up, and together with postural instability is why people with Parkinson's fall so much. Mm. 
So gastrointestinal dysfunction, it's another really important one in terms of prognosis and, and end-stage Parkinson's because they get really bad dysphagia towards the end and you get in these really tricky situations of do you put in a peg tube for feeding and that kind of thing when the prognosis is so bad. And also I remember it was an important one to think about um, when I was doing general surgery as an intern um, is you'd have these Parkinson's patients who would often have um, pseudo-obstruction or Ogilvy syndrome, particularly when they're nil by mouth and they can't get their Parkinson's medications. Mm. So let's run through that list quickly. So postural instability, cognitive dysfunction and dementia, psychosis and hallucinations, autonomic dysfunction and gastrointestinal dysfunction. Can I just ask, gastroparesis, is that a part of those yeah. that autonomic dysfunction as yeah, well? Yeah, it can be, yeah. Mm. All right, so what about the examination? What are, we, what are we looking for on the exam? I walk into the room. So this is where the money is, right? This is, this is why uh, movement disorders are some of the last bastion of uh, you know, true clinical experts because there's nothing better than them. There's no test better than a movement disorder specialist for diagnosing Parkinson's disease. And they're real like classic Sherlock Holmes type. Um, neurologists with keen observation skills because they'll often make a diagnosis as soon as they've walked into a room and that's because a lot of these signs you can just you can pick up on observation so what what kind of stuff am I talking about Beck? so mask like faces these are patients who who don't look very reactive in their face hypomimia is the other name hypomimia mm-hmm. okay um tremor we talked about that already so you're gonna obviously often notice that and then I think for me, the real money is in watching them walk. So they walk into the consultation room and already you've seen that they've got a shuffling gait. Mm. They have a limited arm swing. They might be um, quite stooped over. And whenever they face some kind of an obstacle that, that's not really a true obstacle, like a doorway or, or walking past something, they freeze. Mm. If you ask them to turn around, they might have a very wide turning circles yeah, so this it is like, where it was like we, me when i was learning to drive they've got like 30 point turns <laughs> if they're trying to change directions the really surprising thing about how parkinson's patients move is that if you kind of distract them with an active task they often move much much better so for example they tandem gait they heel to Heel to shin much better than you would expect. Heel to, heel to toe. Don't heel try to, to don't <laughs> try to get someone with an unstable gait to walk with their heel to their shin. It's not going to work. Heel to toe. Heel so. to toe. And so. I didn't. Yeah. So heel to toe walking is also called tandem gait. Mm. Um, and I saw a really good video of this once, where there was a guy in an Italian nursing home who was an ex-football player, ex-professional football player, who was terrible Parkinson's, could barely move, shuffling like anything. And then basically they got a stick with a with a soccer ball on top of it that he could kick as he moved, and like suddenly, you know, he was more agile than I would be with that <laughs> with that soccer ball and stick. It was incredible to see. All right, so that's that's on observation. You could probably make the diagnosis there a lot of the time, but you should you should test for bradykinesia because, as we said, that was the feature you have to have. So I kind of said it before, but we'll say it again. Um, you can do it in lots of different ways, but the way I do it is by rep- repetitive tapping of two fingers together. The, the index finger and thumb is what I use. Mm. And uh, you you ask them to keep doing these big taps, and then they can't maintain the same size. The amplitude decreases and the, and the speed slows down. So you need to look for speed and amplitude. But you can do it lots of... Just any tapping will work. 
A good one is drawing a circle on a piece of paper because it'll just get smaller and smaller and smaller, like doing this etch-a-sketcher type pattern. Mm, mm. And I do toe tapping, so um, just getting them to repeat that movement. Mm. All right, what about rigidity? Yeah, so we said that before. Cogwheeling is the classic sign where that's tremor plus increased tone. Mm. So the way I test for rigidity and cogwheeling is uh, I use the wrist and it's good to uh, to move around in an unpredictable way. So move their whole arm around at the same time as um, testing their wrist. And to really bring out the cogwheeling, what you can do is get them to make a fist in the other hand. Because, uh, for some reason, that, that makes the cogwheeling come out more. Mm. So the other key feature, Beck, is? Uh, we haven't talked about postural instability yet. Mm. So you test that with the pull test. Can you describe that one to me? Yeah, so... The patient's standing up and you stand behind them and essentially pull them towards you. So that knocks them off their, their balance, that will they lose balance. And if they have normal postural tone, they'll just take a step back and, and they'll be okay. But patients with Parkinson's disease, when they lose their balance a little bit when you pull them, will keep on stepping backwards. Mm. Yeah, one of my interns last year, his grandfather had Parkinson's disease and he's from a big property out in rural New South Wales and told me a story which is either tragic or, or darkly funny depending on your predisposition. I won't say which one, how I reacted. But uh, his poor grandpa who had bad Parkinson's disease and he had this postural instability um, and he would kind of lean too far forward and, and then just wouldn't be able to right himself. So often they'd find him on this like far-flung stretch of this huge, <laughs> huge property, but she just ran forward until he hit a fence. <laughs> All right. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, is that your true gut reaction? He seemed to be laughing back. <laughs> All right, so differentials. So as we said, the diagnosis is clinical, but you've got to think about some differentials. So the Parkinson's Plus Syndrome. So this is beyond medical student level, but it's good to know. So they're called the Three Ugly Sister. These terrible Parkinson's-like syndromes, which are much, much worse. So that's progressive supranuclear palsy, multi-system atrophy, and cortical basal syndrome. So even though they all present like Parkinson's, interestingly, if you remember pathophysiologically, some of them are tauopathies and some of them are alpha-synucleinopathies, but we won't go into that. But basically... There's some features that should make you suspicious that it's a Parkinson's plus syndrome rather than Parkinson's. Do you mm. want to tell me what they are, Beck? Yeah, so if patients are falling and that's an early sign mm. and there's not much else so going in, on. In Mahesh's case, I think it was probably the ACE inhibitor. But in general, if they're falling a lot, it's a, it's a bad sign. And then if they're rapidly progressing, if you try diagnosing them with Parkinson's and you, and you try levodopa and they're not responsive to that, we mentioned earlier that Parkinson's is, is um, asymmetrical. So if it's symmetrical, you're thinking about Parkinson's plus, And if they don't have a tremor. Mm, yeah. And another one is also another differential outside of Parkinson's plus. Another differential is drug-induced. So I had a patient on the ward recently who was being treated for her schizophrenia and the antipsychotic medication she was on, risperidone, the dose was, was too high and she had significant extrapyramidal side effects which just looks like parkinson's and i walked in to meet her and she was trying to eat her breakfast and it took her the whole the whole um you know ward round session by the bedside for her to get the fork to her mouth Mm. because she was so bradykinetic and with with such a um, pronounced tremor Mm. so drug induced is that second differential and then the third differential 
So normal pressure hydrocephalus. So we won't, again, we won't go into this too much, but this is basically when the CSF pressure is normal, but they've got really big ventricles. And the triad you might have heard before is wet, wacky, wobbly. So these patients are urinary incontinent. They have uh, cognitive symptoms and they're wobbly. They have difficulty walking. And they're... I've never heard that before. Well, that's a good I've one. I've heard the triad of ataxia confusion. Yeah, <laughs> wet, wacky, wobbly. It sounds like a theme park. Uh, it's not much fun though. They have a very magnetic gait, unfortunately. So they like their legs st- are stuck to the ground. It's really hard for them to lift up. But interestingly, pop them on the bed and they can move their limbs really, really well when the ground is not involved. Mm. So let's uh, let's get back to Mahesh. So he comes back to the bedside and he shuffles over. Um, now that you look at him, his uh, face isn't moving too much and he doesn't look like the kind of guy who, who would have had Botox. You sit him down and tell him there's a few random questions to ask. I always have to do this, but you promise that they are relevant. So then out of nowhere, I ask him how his sense of smell is, if he's acting out his dreams, and whether he's been constipated. The answer is he looks at you as if you're some kind of uh, magician with a magic eight ball, but he's like, yes, how did you know I have had all of those things? You examine him and he's got a fair bit of bradykinesia and uh, he's also got pretty bad cogwheel rigidity. So I'm not... In this situation, you're not a Parkinson's expert, so you can't make the diagnosis. All you can do is make, um, say that it's suspicious and send him to a movement disorders clinic. Um, and you break the news to Mahesh. And this is, this is a key thing I find because Parkinson's disease is pretty common for us. Um, and we're all also so pleased with that clinical acumen at making the diagnosis in a patient. We often forget mm. what that word means to patients. And I've seen lots and lots of times that people just drop that bombshell and say, I think you've got Parkinson's disease, almost with a smile on their face because they're proud, Mm. and and then um, send them off to movement disorders clinic. And all Parkinson's disease means to people is Michael J. Fox and uh, Muhammad Ali, which is not not encouraging example. So I'd really stress to remember that when you find yourself in this kind of situation. Mm. All right, so we'll move on to treatment. How do you treat Parkinson's disease? If you think back to pathophysiology, what was what was lacking? Uh, the thing that was lacking was dopamine. Yeah, exactly. So we can't just give them dopamine because uh, that will get used up in the peripheral system. So we have to give them something called levodopa, which is a precursor to dopamine is turned into that. And to make sure that that levodopa isn't um, turned into dopamine in the peripheral system, you give it with carbidopa. What does carbidopa do? So it prevents the peripheral conversion of levodopa to, to dopamine. Yeah, and um, it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, so you can't. it, it doesn't do that in the brain. Mm, so clever. So levodopa, carbidopa, that's the key treatment. And that's really, um, we're going back to more and more levodopa slash carbidopa, um, mm. thanks to a big study called PDMed, which proved that it's basically the best drug and um, it dispelled the common myth that it was a drug you had to save because previously people thought that you got you only had a few good years on levodopin so you should wait until the last minute to use it mm, but that's that, what i was taught in medical school yeah that, yeah that's what i was taught as well i but, feel so old <laughs> but now we know that that's just to do with the disease progression and you might as well just start them on levodopa um, because it's the best drug mm. I'll, I'll be brief here. There are still adjunctive medications that we're using and they still have a role. Um, that's more of a specialist area of knowledge. But um, dopamine agonists, as you can imagine, 
um, uh, agonists at the dopamine receptor, so do a similar thing to levodopa. Mm-hmm. Um, there's breakdown inhibitors, so they prevent the breakdown of dopamine, so you've got more of it in your brain. So that's MAO inhibitors and COMPT inhibitors, so they're the two enzymes that break down dopamine, MAO and COMPT. Yep. And the last one is amantadine, which is an old flu drug which also increases dopamine release. Mm. So we've got the medications. What are the side effects? So there's two key side effects, um, motor fluctuations and impulse control disorders. To know, everyone should know this about levodopa, no matter what your specialty is. So let's talk about motor fluctuations first. So basically, early in the disease, in Parkinson's disease, you don't need much dopamine and it lasts a long time. Um, but then as the disease progresses, um, you need more and more dopamine. You need to give it more and more frequently. That makes sense, right? So these are the drug charts we'll be rewriting as an intern yeah. where they're getting their Parkinson's meds every few hours. Yeah. But the other thing that happens as Parkinson's disease um, progresses, if you give them dopamine, they are much more fragile and easily flip into a dopamine excess state called dyskinesias. So there's three possible states for a Parkinson's patients on levodopa. They can be off, where they don't have enough enough um, dopamine and they're frozen. They can be on, which is good. That's what you aim for. They can move reasonably freely. They're kind of normal. And then they're dyskinetic when they have too much uh, levodopa in their system. And they basically have Huntington's. They they have chorea. They're moving too much. They've got the Wrigley's. Um, So the, the further they progress, the harder it is to keep them into that on state. They're just constantly flipping... Uh, from off to dyskinetic with a very brief on period in between. Um, Mm. It becomes very hard to manage. And when they're doing that, that's when you have to look at some advanced therapies um, that we'll talk about in a second. Mm. So that's motor fluctuations. And then there's impulse control disorder. So this is really important to know about as well. What's that? I don't know. Okay. Tell me. I'll tell you. So it's it's, um, dopamine, um, as you you might have heard, um, is, is a is a neurotransmitter that gives us pleasure, right? And so if you give them dopamine, they tend to become like these really addictive people where um, they they start getting obsessed with particular things. And um, movement disorders love these anecdotes. They've all got these amazing anecdotes that they've given levodopamine. They've had terrible impulse control disorders. So you've got priests that suddenly start hiring prostitutes all the time. Or another one is a, a... a guy who was really into bird watching, like, became addicted to it. Like, he'd be, <laughs> be there, like, all hours of the night, like, 24 hours a day, just, like, waiting for that hit, that dopamine hit of, like, Same finding bird. some <laughs> random bird. So it's a really big issue, though, because these it ruins a lot of people's lives, unfortunately. Um, they get addicted to gambling, sex, all these terrible things. And um, movement disorder specialists often find themselves on the stand in court um, trying to explain that this is probably the levodopa that did it rather than the people themselves, um, which is kind of an ethical and philosophical issue that we won't explore here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so end-stage therapy, we mentioned that. What's that, Beck? So deep brain stimulation. Yep. So that is when you... Cut open the skull, expose yourself to all the Parkinson's prion and, um, and put in a wire to certain nucleus. I think the subthalamic nucleus is the most common one um, and it just basically inhibits it. I don't know any specifics beyond that. Thank goodness this isn't live and people can't ask me questions. Um, <laughs> but it works really, really well for the motor symptoms of Parkinson's. But actually, they 
people take a bit of a cognitive hit, a bit of a cognitive step down. Mm. So this is good for the patients with really bad motor symptoms and not much cognitive or dementia type stuff. And increasingly, there's more and more evidence that we shouldn't, much like levodopa was back in the day, we shouldn't wait until the last moment to give someone DPS. We need to recognize patients that would benefit early on mm. and give them more, as many good life, good years of quality of life as, as possible. Some other end-stage therapies, Beck. So we mentioned dopamine agonists earlier. Yeah. You can give an apomorphine infusion as yes. a dopamine agonist. Yeah, so you can imagine with the motor fluctuations when you're taking levodopa six times a day or whatever, um, that's when you need to start thinking of an infusion, something just giving them a constant stream of dopamine to try and reduce those motor fluctuations. And in a similar line of thinking, there's intraduodenal levodopa, which gives them a trickle of levodopa mm. as well. All right, so that's it. Let's go through some take-home messages, Beck. All right, those words that you told me to remember for the pathophysiology. So Parkinson's disease is an alpha-synucleinopathy. Nailed it. And it affects the basal ganglia. And uh, there's a lack of dopamine. And do- was that yeah. dopamine was the third word there? Mm. All right, and, and there's a classic triad. Decrementing bradykinesia, which is a necessary part of the diagnosis. Tremor and rigidity. And uh, before that, you might get um, anosmia, constipation, and REM sleep disorder. And then what kind of things do you worry about that maybe this is a a different disease, like a Parkinson's Plus or or something else? What kind of features are you looking for? So early falls, rapid rapid progression, non-response to levodopa, Mm. if it's symmetrical, Mm. and if there's no tremor. And what's the best medication? What's the king? Um, you're very into the royal family. Levodopa is king. And the two key side effects that everyone should know uh, are motor fluctuations and impulse control disorders. Beautiful. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Dabo. Bye.